In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. Help us to kind of pull together many of the things that this book of Deuteronomy is trying to tell us. Uh, particularly it, its history. We'll spend more time today on its history than on some of the details within the book itself. It'll help us then to understand what it is you're trying to tell us through this book and help us to open our minds and our hearts to the fact that there's more to Scripture than just the words. And it's the meaning that we take and live within us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I was thinking quite a bit uh, since last week about this book and some of the things that we are reading in it as if we are to try to learn and and apply them to today's uh, understanding of religion and society and legalism, etc., etc. And it's almost impossible in, in a way, but yet we can't put these stories down. Uh, the chapters that we are going to be uh, reading today and have a lot of things that don't apply to us today. But we've got to step back a little bit and think that the stories that are in this book are there for a reason. Not only for the people of the 9th and the 8th century BC, but for us today. We've got to step back and think that, or remember, that this is nearly 3,000 years ago, and how advanced those people really were compared to what we think they were. Often we feel that uh, they're primitive people, and in a way that is true compared to today. But are they, or were they any better or any worse? Frankly, I think society is much worse today than it was then because we had the benefit of all of this information and we continue to do the same things that the people of the 9th and the 8th century B.C. were being accused of. We neglect God. We disobey the rules and we profane many of the things that God has given us or asked us to do. And so I feel that we are really losing out when we dismiss a lot of the words because they don't apply to us today. No, maybe those same words don't, but I think what we are doing today is just as bad as it was uh, at that time period. So let us go through, beginning with chapter 25 here, and the next three or four chapters, and take a look at them and compare what the people were doing. You see, as I've said many, many times, and I will continue to say, the writers of this book are not trying to teach us history. They are trying to dispel, no, they're trying to teach us that God has given the Jewish people and now the Christian people a certain message of how he wants to be loved and obeyed and how we should love and obey not only him but each other in order to have the peace and the security 
that all of us desire. So let us go through here and take a little bit of time to uh, look at some of this stuff here that <clears throat> um, might or might not apply to us today you know, with different words. When men have a dispute and bring it to court, and in a decision handed down to them, acquitting the innocent party and condemning the guilty party. Well, that's not much different than we have today. If the latter deserves stripes, meaning lashes, whiplashes, the judge shall have him lie down in his presence and receive the number of uh, stripes his the guilt deserves. Forty stripes may be given him but no more, lest he were be beaten with more stripes than these. Your kinsmen should be looked upon as disgraced because of the severity of the beating. It's interesting that uh, this idea of 40 stripes, because it became the norm in uh, Jewish history for that time period, and if any one of you have, and I'm sure there's been plenty of you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Christ is being scourged at the pillar, in the background you can hear them counting 40 stripes, minus one. It became a sort of secondary rule that a person would never get the total 40 because that would exonerate him from all of the crime that he gave or did. So it was always 39 stripes because 40 was going just a little too far. Okay. And in the case of the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, you can hear them chanting. Unfortunately, they're chanting in Latin rather than in Hebrew. Because remember that movie is all in Aramaic, uh, with a few exceptions. <clears throat> and yet these, uh, the chant in the back is in Latin. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I can't give you any answer to that, but nevertheless. So 40 stripes was, uh, a, a very common punishment at the time. Uh, then here's one that we can say, well, this doesn't apply to us, but it does apply to farmers. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out grain. In other words, you should let it eat while it is moving uh, because that is giving the animal strength. So it may not apply to us, but it's common sense. Now, the Liberate marriage. This is an interesting story here because if you recall the gospel for last Sunday at our mass was about the woman who had a husband that died before she had any children and then the brother of that person was to marry that woman and this was of course a test that the Pharisees were giving or the Sadducees, I forget which now, party, I think it was the Sadducees, uh, were giving Jesus because they wanted to test him by asking the question, well, after she'd married seven uh, brothers and they all go to, uh, they all die and go to heaven, whose bride or wife will she be? Yeah. And Jesus realizes what they're doing. Uh, they're just testing him. So all he says is they won't, she won't have any need for a husband in heaven because everything is perfect and, uh, it will not be that way in heaven that they don't marry and so forth and so on. And then Jesus, of course, goes on to talk about, uh, other things such as the time when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he said he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Well, if he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died many years before, at least four or five hundred years before Moses, uh, then uh, they must still be alive. The same, the same kind of thing is also given in the New Testament for other reasons and other purposes. Uh, but the whole idea of uh, the resurrection of the body came from that uh, teaching. No, no, then he would not, he would be exempt from that. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're going to test Christ with some kind of ungodly, uh, well, anyways. Uh, there are a few other things in here that we're going to skip over because I want to get to something that is much more important. Uh, for example, if we go over to verse 17, 25, chapter 25, verse 17, bear in mind that Amalek, did you on your journey after you left Egypt, uh, what he did to you really, uh, how without fear of any God he harassed you along the way, weak and weary as you were, and cut off the water, uh, I'm sorry, cut off the the rear, in other words, he ambushed the, the rear of uh, the caravan and all those who lag behind. And therefore, when the Lord your God gives you rest, in other words, he's talking about something or the Deuteronomist here is writing in this speech something about happened way back at the time of Moses. But at the time that this is written, uh, it says here down in the explanation, by the time Deuteronomy was written, the Amaleks or the Amalekites had already disappeared from the pages of history. So he's not, you see, they're reminding the people of many things that God did to protect them. And that is why they should be much more obedient than they are today. Chapter 26 is all about the thanksgiving. Uh, and of course, that is very appropriate for us. For in a couple of weeks, we'll be doing the same thing. But how many of you or your family or people that you know go to church on that day and offer thanks as part of your celebration on that day because even though it is not a holy day of obligation or anything else that the church teaches because this is a secular holiday not a holy day uh, Thanksgiving is a day set aside by our nation to thank God for the many blessings that he has given us well you don't thank God by sitting down to a big table uh, full of beautiful food and uh, all of that which goes with it, uh, unless you really thank God by going to church in the morning. Uh, but I know that many women will will say, well, I've got a big meal to cook. How can I go to church, you know? Um, I think that there should be room for both. There should be room for both, okay? In the other part of that same chapter is a quite, a, quite a bit about the idea of offering first fruits. And this isn't where it began, but the same idea of offering the first fruits of a harvest or even the first fruits out of your garden to God in some way in thanksgiving for the idea of giving it to you through your work, your efforts in farming or gardening or whatever the case might be. But the idea of first fruits is still, in many cultures, uh, observed 
both in the spring spring harvest and in the uh, fall harvest. Okay. <clears throat> Says uh, here in uh, verse 11, and then you and your family together with the Liverite and the aliens who lived among you. Now, you remember what the Liverite is? The, yes, it's the priest that live among all of the other tribes, the priests of the tribe of Levi, okay. and the aliens who live with you, that is, uh, the servants and so forth who are not Jews, shall make merry uh, over all of these goods, things which the Lord your God has given you. And that's part of the celebration of the Feast of Thanksgiving. Okay. And it goes on to another subject of tithes, the idea of tithing uh, didn't come from this book, but from another story within uh, the, I think it was in the book of Genesis, where Abraham has a battle with uh, one of the neighboring communities, and the well, there's a priest that comes out and blesses him. Hmm? Melchizedek, yes, thank you. I couldn't remember the name. Uh, just getting old here, you see. Uh, Melchizedek came out and helped him. And then afterwards, after settling the problem, then they settled down. And Abraham gives Melchizedek the tenth of all of his possessions as a thank you uh, offering. Let's go on to 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe the statutes and decrees. Be careful then to observe them with all your heart, with all your soul. Today you are making this agreement with the Lord. Uh, he is to be your God, and you are to walk in his ways and observe his statutes, commandments, and decrees. The Deuteronomists are trying to remind the people of the time period that because of all of the good things that God has given them, they are to walk upright with uh, clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, they are to, to walk without blemish. And of course, that is just the opposite of what they were doing, and that is why the book was written in the first place. <clears throat> chapter 27 is sort of the tail end of it. Well, let me go back. Check chapter 26 is sort of the end of the list of rules and regulations that the Jewish people were being uh, required to observe. It is the section that was taken to Babylon a uh, hundred and some years later after it was rejected by the people of the ninth and the eighth century in the kingdom of Israel that it was taken to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah and tried to be given to those people as well because they were just as bad as the people of the north but they uh, poo-pooed the whole thing and rejected it and so it ended up in the uh, temple archives for a long time uh, but it is chapter 12 through 26, that was the part taken to um, Babylon. And we'll get into that a little later uh, in this session because I want to get into the area of uh, the priest Ezra. <clears throat> Chapter 26 begins sort of the, the final words, which was probably written uh, much later after. Uh, either in Babylon or after they got back to Israel. 
Then Moses, with the elders of Israel, gave the people this order. Keep all of these commandments which I enjoin on you today. In other words, actually repeating just what was said above. On the day you cross the Jordan into the land which the Lord your God has given you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Also write on them at the time you cross all the words of this law that you may thus enter into the land flowing with milk and honey, which the Lord your God and the God of your fathers is giving you as he promised. This was a very important uh, point for the Jewish people. And they did. They used to set up these little monuments with uh, abbreviations of the laws. And again, in chapter uh, or verse 11, it says really the same thing. But here we have a little bit of a difference on here. Uh, it says, the same day Moses gave the people this order. When you cross the Jordan, Simon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Joseph, and Benjamin shall stand on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings over the people. While Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali shall stand at Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Uh, and then he goes into what these blessings and the curses are. I'm not going to go into that. All of it. The whole idea here is he's dividing the people. Uh, and of course, this is seven or eight years later, seven or eight hundred years later, that this is actually being said. But this is what happened way back. Uh, when the people came over, this was a sign of their offering of thanksgiving uh, and a warning at the same time. Half of the tribes, six of them were on one side of the Jordan, and the other six were on the other side of the Jordan. The six on the... Uh, west side of the Jordan offered the blessings because they were now in the promised land. The six on the west, no, on the east side of the Jordan were were, were uh, shouting the, the curses. Uh, and it wasn't that they were cursing anybody. It was they were actually warning themselves that these would be the curses if these uh, particular Commands were not being obeyed. Kind of interesting. Deuteronomy, I think, is interesting because you have to constantly remind yourself that this is a group of people, small group of people, writing way after the fact, but reminding the people of all the good things that God did for them uh, up to this point, uh, and that is why that they should turn from their evil ways and obey. Could we do the same thing today? Could we go back? I'm sure all of you remember uh, what was called the blue laws of years past when all of the stores were closed except for a few restaurants and maybe the drugstores and the, the movie theater, but you couldn't really do much of anything except go to church or you know, sit around and be family. It was also a time when the Sunday dinner was the most important part of the week, and it was always something where all of the family came together and enjoyed a sit-down dinner and talked to each other which went on and on and on, especially in Italian families. I know. Um, okay. Could we do the same today? Would we really want to do the same today? I think most of us would, but it would never happen because the people who are making the money off of the stores being open and everything else uh, wouldn't allow it to happen. Okay. But just think back. And that is what the Deuteronomists are trying to do. 
they're trying to get the people to go back and be sincere servants of the Lord. And it became impossible for the same reasons as it would be today. Same type of thing. The blessings and the curses take up almost all of chapter uh, 28. Uh, there, um, there are a few things here that we could get into, but I don't think it's in, important. The whole idea is that we cannot dismiss this as being irrelevant to us today because I think it is more relevant to us today than it has been in a long, long time. Can each of us really condemn the people or look down upon the people of this time period? I think they were far more advanced in many ways than we are. Yeah, we have a number of gadgets to look at that they didn't have. We have lights. We have heat indoors that they didn't have. Uh, there's a number of things that we have, but are we thanking God for them? Are we really thanking God for the many graces and blessings that he has given? And then, in on top of all of these physical things, we have the theology of the church trying to teach us uh, what is the right way to go. And yet, there are more killings, uh, needless, senseless killings, and there's more <clears throat> needless, senseless activity going on, particularly on Sundays, than there ever was before. And nothing is being done about it. How sad. How sad. Any questions? Okay. I would like to get into talking to uh, about the priest Ezra. Ah, uh, yeah, well, I, I can see a lot of them didn't. Obviously, this was copied out of another book, and uh, that's why you have those uh, lines across the bottom and up the side a little bit. Uh, I don't think that's important. Now, interesting thing about Ezra is that there is a lot of writings about him, and yet there is a lot of writings that are missing about him. For example, we have no idea of where he came from, where he was born. It is thought that he probably was born in Babylon, after the southern kingdom of Judah uh, was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and taken uh, captive along with the people from Judah to Babylon. He was, you know, they were there 50 years. And they were given a lot of freedom, leeways, they were able to have their own homes. They were able to engage in business and do a lot of things that was unheard of for prisoners or for captives uh, in that time period. So we think that Ezra was probably born there, but there is no proof one way or the other. The thing is, if you read all of the history of Ezra, you still come away not knowing exactly when he lived and when he died. But his influence lives on even in Jewish history today. He is often referred to as a second Moses because while in Israel the people had this freedom that I just mentioned and at, and at times they would develop these house, uh, houses of study and prayer. 
because they took the chapters 12 through 26 of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and the reason they did that, because one of the Deuteronomist uh, descendants was still familiar with this and took part of the scriptures along with them, along with the histories, uh, the other histories that were written. You recall in the beginning of this session here, I went through that little exercise of showing how the histories were divided and developed into various books. Well, they were not, you know, books in the way we think of books today, but nevertheless, they were taken to Israel <coughs> along with the captives. Um, they were taken to Babylon, I should say, along with the, the captives. And while there, they were able to study. But what did they study? All they had is these particular histories. And in latching on to the book of Deuteronomy, they began to see, because up to this time they couldn't understand how God could have let them down and be conquered uh, by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, how they could be uh, neglected and taken away in cap as captives. And that is because God was trying to punish them, but not condemn them. He was not trying to put them totally out as all as did happen with the people from the northern kingdom. They were conquered by the king of Assyria back in 722 BC and taken off as captives to Syria, never to be seen or heard of again. So the people that were taken to Babylon under the sort of the same conditions were treated much differently and they were able to uh, have freedoms and times of their own. So they began to study and see that it was their own sinfulness that landed them in Babylon. And if you read some of the uh, Psalms, for example, 126 and 136, uh, by the streams of Babylon, there we sat and left. You probably are familiar with that psalm. Um, and then there's uh, another one. Uh, also, the book of Daniel, although it was written in the second century BC, it was written as if it was written back in the sixth, seventh, uh, rather the, the, um, yeah, 6th century B.C. as coming from um, Babylon. And there's some beautiful prayers in the book of Daniel referring to many of the things that were happening there. And I would strongly recommend that you read the book of Daniel if you have time because it fits greatly into uh, what is going on here and what we're talking about. But at the time, <clears throat> once they began to see that it was their own sinfulness that landed them in Babylon, they began to read uh, these chapters 12 through 26. Of course, they weren't divided by chapters at that time. Uh, that didn't come along in much, much later. Um, they began to see it was their own sinfulness that landed them there. And through that, and through the efforts of the Deuteronomists, and we believe that Ezra the priest was probably one of them, uh, they decided that once they got back to Israel, that they were going to change their ways and uh, live up to the teachings of Christ, or rather God. Um, and that did happen to, for a while. But then the old problems began to return. But nevertheless, Ezra 
and Nehemiah were given permission by the king of Persia, who conquered the Babylonians in uh, uh, the middle of the 6th century, I forget just what the date is, uh, and allowed them to return to Israel. And they did, not all at one time, but gradually many of them did return, but many of them did not. Uh, anyways, Ezra and Nehemiah were given permission by the king of Persia at that time, Artaxerxes, uh, to return and help. Now, Nehemiah spent most of his time in the uh, physical reconstruction of Jerusalem and the development of law and order. Ezra was spent, because he was a priest, and in Babylon, the high priest became the chief uh, ruler, you might say, <coughs> excuse me, He was the chief important person uh, of the Jewish captives uh, and became sort of the uh, overall ruler because of the, the monarchy had disappeared. And when they got back to Israel, the high priest was the uh, most important person uh, of authority, both religious and civic, and was that way all the way up until the year 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. <clears throat> and that's how the uh, high priest uh, became so powerful at the time of Christ. I lost my trend of thought here, but anyways... But I think we can see that Ezra was the one uh, and his followers. He obviously had followers. If you read that and uh, take it literally, it would look like Ezra had to be 150 years old by the end of his authority or time. Well, obviously we know that that wasn't possible. <clears throat> so it had to be his followers who took all of those histories along with the book of Deuteronomy and over a period of time they rewrote or re uh, shuffled the deck uh, and put them into the order that we have today. And it was through the efforts of Ezra that the first five books of the Bible now including the book of Genesis, which we feel that he or his people wrote somewhere around the 5th century B.C., became the Torah. The Torah was the most important part of the Jewish history, the Jewish lifestyle, the Jewish culture, and of the Jewish writings. It was the first uh, religious creed that was developed uh, by anyone, for that matter. And that is where uh, the Torah began. The Torah is more, and I think from this writing on the back of this paper here, <coughs> You can see that the Torah is much more than just uh, a set of rules and regulations. It is a way of culture. So let's let's go through this uh, rather quickly, and I would welcome any questions that you might have after. An important theme in both Ezra and Nehemiah is the Torah as a written official guide for the life of the Jewish community. 
In the book of Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 10, Ezra reads the law. The people confess their failure to observe it, and then they agree to live according to its precepts. Unfortunately, too many Christians have very distorted notions of the Torah. These may have arisen because of the tense atmosphere of the Gospels, which recount Jesus' debates with the Pharisees regarding the interpretation of the Torah and the bitter exchanges between uh, between Paul and some of the early Christians who thought that the Torah should be observed by everyone, including the early Christians. But both Jesus and Paul often gave praise to the Torah. Do you think, this is Jesus saying, saying now, quote, do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Actually, those little dots there separate what Jesus said after that. So if I may go back, he said, uh, do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? And he goes on to say, I did not come to abolish the law nor the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that is why we often refer to the Old Testament as the book of the promise, which is salvation, and the New Testament as the book of, as the book of fulfillment, which of course is the way to gain salvation. <clears throat> Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So, then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Still, the word law, quote-unquote, has a negative ring to it in the ears of most Christians. And that's because they don't want to observe laws. And God doesn't want to be loved because of laws. By obeying laws, he wants to be loved and obeyed out of love. The key to understanding and approaching the Torah is to discover where it came from. Like most important words in the Hebrew Bible, Torah is used in several different ways. Torah could have come from the Hebrew word yara, <coughs> which means to cast lots, to point the way or to instruct. Well, obviously, to point the way or instruct is very important and, and correct. Torah may have derived from the instructions priests gave to the people. And that would be correct also. In the Bible, Torah usually refers to God's instructions to or through Moses at Sinai and that he handed on to ancient Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, Torah takes on a more extensive sense and becomes that which determines Israel's culture, religious, and national identity. The prophets use Torah in several ways. Cultic regulations, God's moral commands, and ethnic moral norms, and even the divine teachings given through the prophets. The Psalms praise both the Torah and those who live by it. Now, Torah is five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The early rabbis believed that they were responsible for transmitting not only the written Torah, but also an oral Torah, which continued the teachings of revered sages who furthered the obligations of the law beyond the words of the written Torah and made violations of the written Torah much more difficult. Around 2000 AD, 
after Christ, Rabbi Judah the prince committed this oral law to writing in a work called the Mishnah, observing the law in Judaism. Today, Torah refers not only to the books of Moses, but to the Talmud and the entire Jewish ethical tradition. <coughs> By way of information, the Torah does not contain does not contain the 613 laws that the Jewish people observe. That is in the Talmud, not the Torah. Excuse me, I sympathize you who are ever coughing over there because I'm having the same problems. <laughs> Excuse me. But I have a runny nose and I don't want to get my papers all wet here from the running nose. <laughs> now, did, did you get that? The Torah began in Babylon by the development of the book of Deuteronomy into a much larger book that included Exodus, Leviticus, uh, and the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, and then when they got back to Israel, they decided that this was very important, but it had no beginning. So someone, and we're not sure, we give the credit to Ezra, but we're not sure of that, <clears throat> developed the book of Genesis. And finally, those five books were the beginning uh, and the foundation of not only Jewish culture, but Jewish faith and religion. <clears throat> the Bible often speaks of Israel as God's children. Some people understood the Torah as the teaching given by the loving parent God to the child Israel. In this light, the giving of Torah is an act of highest love. Jews of ancient Israel or modern times do not experience Torah as a burden, but as a way of <clears throat> a way of life and as a source of joy. This devotion to ethical principles, the attitude of self-examination and self-correction that comes from loving observance and the preservation of identity through a specific moral code. These are values that Christians could learn from Judaism, uh, ancient and modern. Amen. <laughs> now, so have you learned something that you didn't know before, maybe? Yeah. So that Torah is more than just five books. Yes, Julie? Many of the uh, Islamic people have parts of the Torah in their belief, also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but not all of them, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions on that? <coughs> Along the same lines as the first five books. Remember, it was. We believe Solomon, we don't know for sure, who encouraged the people to write their histories. Well, most of those histories were written at the same time or shortly afterwards. <clears throat> Very few of them were written on site, like much of our history is today. Uh, but it was the Torah, and beginning with Abraham, that really started bringing this all together. So who put all of the books together? 
Well, in the Old Testament, we believe it was Ezra. Yes, yes. Well, in the one book that is we call the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. The Old Testament today. Now, with some exceptions, the books of wisdom, there's six or seven books of wisdom, those came much later. They were not put in there incorporated until around the second century BC. But when the wave now we're jumping forward into the 15th century AD, uh, well, let me go back. After both the Assyrian occupation uh, of the north and the Babylonian occupation and capture and conquering of the south, Many people, Jewish people, dispersed into long other places. All right. After a while, they wanted, because they kind of lost their heritage in speaking Aramaic and uh, Hebrew, they acquired uh, the Greek language or the language of those areas that they fled to. And so they wanted the Hebrew scriptures translated from Aramaic into Greek. And so a group of men, <clears throat> tradition says, how true we don't know. I'm saying tradition says, not history says, but tradition says that 72 men came together, six from each of the 12 tribes, and developed or translated all of the Hebrew scriptures from Aramaic into Greek and then added six books that were not previously in that batch of Hebrew books. I know, I know, I know, but that is, remember I said, not history, tradition says. Okay, uh, there's a lot of things that we could point to, but you know, we today are so critical of being right that uh, you can't go back to the way Jewish people looked at things. At times, you know? <coughs> so. The Old Testament was put together and developed by about the second, late second century BC in the way we have it today. But there were two versions, the Hebrew version and the Greek version. All right. The church, after it started to develop religions related to Christ afterwards, and in the 4th century, Pope Damascene commissioned St. <clears throat> uh, Jerome, thank you, <laughs> commissioned St. Jerome to translate the scriptures, both Hebrew and the Greek scriptures, or into Latin. And that became the Latin Vulgate. And it was Jerome who put all of the books together that we have today in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, he had to make a lot of decisions because there was a lot of writing in the first century B.C., and the second century. So by the fourth century, when he came along and was given this job, there was piles of books all over about Christ and so forth and so on. So he had to make some decisions. So he decided that 
the only books that he would put in to what we now call the New Testament are those that came through or from the apostles in the first century. Anything that was written after that had to be excluded, not because that they weren't good or acceptable, uh, it's because there were just too many of them. And so the cutoff was the first century A.D. for the New Testament. And that's why you have only 27 books in the New Testament. All of them came through the apostles. And that is why we call the church the apostolic church. Yes, Julie? What happened to those other books? They're all available in many, many forms. There's a book that's called The Fathers of the Church. It's very important and includes a great deal of those books. And there's oodles of them. And they're all available. <clears throat> the church, you know, a lot of people think that the church condemned them. But they didn't condemn them. They are all available in many forms. Uh, they just had to make some decisions and have a cutoff date and time and number. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, no. No. Uh, they may be in many ways. And we are certain that they were in many ways, but we cannot just classify them all as being inspired. Not as the Bible that we call the Bible today. No, that's a good point. <clears throat> no. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But are you beginning to understand how the Bible was put together now? Particularly the Old Testament. The Old Testament was uh, pretty much put together in, by Ezra or his followers. We are not certain. One of the interesting things uh, <clears throat> about Ezra is that we can't pin him down to a specific number of years. Time frame, yeah, but that time frame is about 150 years. So I don't think the poor guy lasted that long. I want to read something here out of a couple other books to give you some idea of his importance. <clears throat> this comes from a very old commentary uh, by written by written by a Jesuit priest, Frederick Moriarty. It says, From the time of Ezra, the distinguishing mark of Judaism was settled for all time. The Jew henceforth would not be identified by the nation to which it belonged, nor by the ethnic group of which it happened to be a member, nor by the language he or she spoke, nor by the cultural achievements of his peculiar genus. It was, <coughs> it was fidelity to the law of Moses which identified the authentic Jewish way of life. The Jew was a man who served his God according to revealed norms associated with the name of Moses, the mediator of the law. Very important point. Here's another one out of the dictionary. It says, I'm skipping, it's real long, so I'm only reading a small part of it here. The solemn proclamation of the law is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8. In front of the people gathered together uh, to the southeast of the temple, Ezra read the law of Moses, explaining and clarifying it so that they could understand uh, what was being read. After the reading followed, the feast of tabernacles. After the reading followed the feast of the tabernacles, and then came a penance assembly. This was in their time, way back 
in uh, probably the second century uh, BC. The book of the law, which was read to them, was the Pentateuch in the form that it had at that time evolved into, or perhaps some of the law collections that it contained. Although the account of Ezra's mission obviously reflects the Jewish point of view, it is solidly historical and fits perfectly into the framework of the policy of tolerance introduced by Cyrus the Great, uh, that is, the Persian, who king allowed them to return, and continued by his successors in regard to the religious customs and worship of the people of the empire. <clears throat> in promulgating uh, the law of the Lord by Ezra is a central event in the history of the Jews. From then on, besides the temple and the cult, the law became the axis on which Jewish life revolved and a center of cohesion which saved the, Jewish, uh, saved the Jews as an ethnic and religious community, even the most adverse under the most adverse circumstances. Later tradition exalted Ezra almost to the height of Moses. Apocalyptic literature made him one of the preferred personages uh, to whom it, it attributed the visions of the celestial work and future history. Getting pretty lofty up there. So. <clears throat> to which him, uh, to him was attributed the redaction of all of the sacred books of Israel which had been lost during the time of the exile. The sacred books, that is, all of the other books. Ezra was the one that brought them all together after they returned to uh, Israel right? and kind of put it together. So he, in a way, <clears throat> he did do a lot of writing. Uh, he did do a lot of redacting, that is, editing did a lot of other things. So he might be the counterpart of St. Jerome for the New Testament. Yeah. So he did for the Old Testament what St. Jerome did for the New Testament. But, of course, Jerome took Ezra's work of the Old Testament and translated that from Greek into Latin as well. And this was in the 4th century. No. This century BC, 463, I believe. And of course, the Vulgate became the common uh, and official language of the church and still is. All of uh, the Catholic Church, yes. All documents, <clears throat> all major promulgations, uh, all major events are written in Latin <coughs> and then translated into various languages. Okay. Any other things that we can talk about? I hope you got a better and a hopefully a positive appreciation for the book of Deuteronomy. To some extent then, Christianity and um, Islam both stem from works, the same works, to an extent. I know, not the New Testament, obviously, but they both have their roots in Moses. And well, that, that's a good way of putting it, yes. Uh, the All the rest of the religions developed on their own. Yes, and usually will break off from one or the other. Now, of course, Buddhism and, and, you know, some of the Hindu uh, religions, no. Those who have different beginnings altogether. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but uh, Islam and Christianity both stem from the writings of the Old Testament. Jewish Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, again, I hope you've got some better understanding and appreciation 
for the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it, it is really uh, important. Next week, <clears throat> next week we will finish the last few chapters uh, of this book, which contain uh, chapter uh, the third and the fourth speeches. Remember, this book is written in the form of speeches. Speeches are not history. Speeches are generally a message of some kind. And the message of of this, of course, is that that it is obedience or punishment. Because if we do not obey God, we will be punished in one form or another. That doesn't mean condemnation, but punishment is there. I heard a sermon this just this morning uh, that implied that God loves everybody and everybody's going to go to heaven. Well, that is not the case. Uh, because, as we've said before in that long paper on justification, if that were true, then why bother trying to be good? All right. Uh, Again, next week is our last week. We will finish up the last uh, few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, and we will like to discuss what you might want to discuss in any future session of the Adult Bible Study Program. Okay? Any questions? Then let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for blessing us in many ways by opening our minds and our hearts to one of the more difficult books to understand, that is Deuteronomy. But help us now to take the message that we have received and look into our minds and our hearts, our actions and our speech to see if we are now observing or or profaning the teachings that you gave us through Moses and through Christ. So thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.